I'm Todd Jones, recovering from 30 years as a sports writer. Thanks for joining me as I sit down with some of the best sports writers of our time who knew the greatest athletes and coaches and experienced firsthand some of the biggest sports moments of the past half century. We'll share stories behind the stories, some we've only told each other. Pull up a seat on Press Box Access. People talk about the media as if it doesn't consist of people. You know, real humans. But the best reporters and writers, especially in sports, open themselves up to see the humanity and what they're covering. That's what made Liz Clark so special. She brought empathy, curiosity, and thoughtfulness to everything and everyone she wrote about. Her big heart lit up her stellar work. Liz was all in, all the time. That comes through in this conversation with her, and it makes this one of my favorite interviews on this show. Hey, Liz, thanks for joining us on Press Box Access. This is a real treat. Well, you're nice to have me, Todd. It's good to see you and um, always love talking about our wonderful profession. Yeah, we've got a lot of ground to cover. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So first, first off, congratulations on retiring in April. Uh, you got out. Yes. I mean, I guess I'm one of the few who... Um, who uh, kind of sets the terms of their departure, you know, which is a great privilege. And I had, so I'm 62 and a half. And about two years ago, I started posing the question to myself, you know, could I retire at 62? What would that look like? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I, I guess the key thing to say here is that I absolutely loved every day and every experience of my 37 years as a reporter, um, the last 33 of that as a sports writer, uh, even the horrible, tough days. I loved them all. It just, it was just a, a lifetime of experiences and friendships and challenges. I Never dreamt possible, but um, I'm also an insulin dependent diabetic, which mm. is a, you know, each of us has has their own challenges. For me, that's been a a bit of a health challenge that gets kind of more difficult the longer you have it, and right. the there's a kind of cumulative toll of the travel and the stress, and as much anything, the way I do my job, which is perpetual anxiety. I, I kind of <laughs> make it, you know, way more fraught than it ought to be. Um, it, I just, you know, as I neared 60, I was really facing a health um, versus, right. you know, can I, can I do this job at a lesser intensity? And I just wasn't interested in that, but very interested in a very dynamic fun, engaged, totally uh, separate from sports, third act of life. That perpetual anxiety, though, that you mentioned, that, that yeah. perpetual anxiety, yeah. that is really what one of the many things that made you such a great reporter and writer <laughs> is that you were always on top of things, you know, whether it be tennis or NASCAR or international events such as the World Cup or Olympics, the NFL team, you had to carry that through. So that's what the rhythm of the life was like, right? As a reporter. Well, first of all, thank you for your generosity in that. I mean, there's a couple of ways to look at that. I I did fret and worry and prepare to an absurd amount, <laughs> but that's because 
you know, very few things I covered, if any, were like steeped in my bones since childhood. I was was kind of an accidental sports writer. I mean, a very proud one, but it wasn't um, like many of our peers, a dream since I was eight years old and I threw you right. know, baseballs with my dad in the yard and dreamed of being in a press box. I didn't have that type of narrative, which many people do. So I approached every assignment, whether it was, you know, an NFL team, um, a World Cup soccer match, uh, the most random Olympic sport, you know, luge, skeleton, um, curling, you know, things that that are totally cool and you need to prepare and know right. about, but I it wasn't steeped in my bones. I think I have this specific memory of the uh, U.S. Olympic track and field trials in Sacramento. I had a local throwing the hammer and I was writing deadline versions of hammer throw. And I'm thinking to myself, how did I end up here? Exactly. <laughs> he and picked what, it up. He threw it. What am I supposed to say on three different yes. editions of this? <laughs> yes. No, no, no. I remember being sent um, like spur of the moment to cover skeleton at the, uh, I think it was a, the Salt Lake City Olympics in 2002. And happily, there was a bus ride of some sort to get to that venue right. for the skeleton. And, you know, Back in the day, I mean, I, I know I had a cell phone, but it wasn't like there was the reliable enough connection to do research that way. So the, like the last, right right when I was told, go cover skeleton, I like printed out everything possible <laughs> about what is skeleton, what is a skeleton, how does it work, what are the rules, kind of skeleton for dummies. So I had this like stack of paper and on the bus, I'm like frantically highlighting, oh, it's shaped like this. It weighs this much. And this is, you know, it's actually a head first sport. It's right. not a feet. You know, that's how elemental a lot of my education was, but I just didn't want to embarrass the paper. I didn't want to embarrass <laughs> myself. And I wanted to, to do above all justice to the athletes, to respect right. their sport, yeah. to know enough about their sport, to respect all the years of training and sacrifice that that they had put in. I wanted to put in that, albeit in a compressed, frantically compressed yeah, amount of time. I think we're kindred spirits. I used to carry around files like J. Edgar Hoover type files of clippings and marked up things and notes oh, yes. and cheat sheets. And I always felt it was like my security blanket because I really didn't know what I was doing. I was a fraud. Yes. <laughs> yeah, but you know, the, there's no crime in over-preparing because then, I mean, you write with confidence, um, or at least I write with confidence. It's hard, for, it's hard for me to write well if I'm fretting, like, am I going to expose myself as not really being in command of this? And if I feel in command, you know, I, I write better. Right. You mentioned it was an accidental career. I love that term. You started out as a higher education reporter at the Raleigh News and Observer, but then you switched to sports by moving to the Charlotte Observer. Why did you decide to become a sports writer? Yes, it was, um, it actually was a, a career fork that I had not planned. I didn't see coming. Um, and I'm just so very grateful for it. So as I started out as a generic news reporter, cops, courts, you know, school boards, the whole thing. And then I had come to specialize in, in higher education, which was a great beat at the Raleigh News and Observer because mm -hmm. um, the UNC system is is so significant to, to that state's 
um, you know, economic uh, present and future. And um, so I love that beat. I absolutely love that beat. I ended up through covering higher education, writing about academic fraud in college sports. Specifically. Oh, really? There's fraud yeah, the, in academics? <laughs> it, yeah, oh, yeah. Shock. Um, no, I, it, it, the coverage was largely about um, the men's basketball team at NC State under Jim Valvano, mm-hmm. who was just a totally beloved, charismatic figure, you know, having won the national championship and right. very dynamic. But um it was a, an era and an administration when, uh, you know, a lot of rules were bent, if not flouted, to keep members of the team academically eligible under the requirements. Right. Um, so back in the day, it was an era in the 80s in which sports sections generally focused on event coverage, you know, game advance, game story, game follow, mm-hmm. you know, all the things uh, strictly on the field and, and, and less emphasis on off the field issues. Or, um, right. So through the higher ed beat, um, I wrote about the implications of this for, uh, for the faculty. I mean, it, it actually, there was sort of a faculty uprising because um, they felt the the academic rule bending was preventing the university from being regarded nationally as it should, as it deserved to. Right. So, so that was, that kind of made it my turf. So, I ended up um, with another reporter, a news side reporter named John Day, um, who's now a lawyer. Uh, we we wrote for about a year and a half on that basketball team and the the issue of how you keep a player eligible when the GPA doesn't justify that. And um, anyway, that that led to kind of a job inquiry or a job offer from our main competing paper, the Charlotte Observer. And once I met the sports editor, this awesome editor named Gary Schwab, um, I was like, I have to do this. This is not really my plan, but how cool. So what I thought was like a three to five year detour in the world of sports became the rest of my working life. I I never left sports because I, I came to really love the opportunity, the challenge, the narratives, and I did my best to grow with it, you right. know, and and cover things I felt capable of covering and and if if not you know, really well versed in. Liz, do you think your uh, lack of of pardon the expression, but the lack of knowledge about sports at the start really kind of made you more open to asking questions and going down alleys that maybe you wouldn't have if you had grown up as a sports fan. Yeah, no, no doubt. I mean, no doubt. But I mean, then again, I, I, I really believe in self-determination and, and you make your own fate. Mm. So you have to do what's required to succeed and own your failures and your successes. So I will tell you the way it worked for me is, you know, None of us who covers a city council or local government, the, the basic entry-level reportings, we don't know the, the fine points of zoning laws right. or how a school board operates or, you know, few among us have run for office who are covering political office. So I think any reporter, no matter what your beat 
or what your background, there's a, a profound level of humility you really must bring to the assignment to, to realize you're not the expert. You know, you may be able to write a fine sentence, um, but that doesn't mean you really can understand the many layers of what's going on. You know, I think one thing I lack that in many ways was a good thing is not just automatic awe of athletes. I mean, right. I, I, I'm really good dealing with alphas, you know, whether they're politicians or editors or uh, NASCAR drivers. I mean, I don't bow to people. I'm not obsequious. I mean, I'm always respectful, you know, unless you give me a reason. If, if we're going to go at it, fine. Right. But you're not going to take the crap. No, I'm not going to take the crap, but I'm also not going to just assume that because you're great at your sport, you're a great person mm. or because you say this, you really mean it. You know, what you don't want in sports writers is, is fawning and awe. Idolatry, and, right. Yeah, idolatry. Thank you. That's the best word. Again, respect, you know, is a different category. Liz, was there a moment early in your career where that helped you that you recall an anecdote with those particular athlete or a coach or somebody that was set up as one thing and then you saw right through it? You know, it actually, now that I think about it or that you plant the seed, I think that is really why I ended up getting along so well with Dale Earnhardt, um, the guy, you know, the the dad, the, the late Dale Earnhardt. I guess what worked in my favor that is the opposite of awe, you know, what, you know, he was the ultimate badass and, and, and just, you know, drove the black car, the black three, he was mirrored sunglasses, you know, impenetrable, um, the intimidator. Kind of persona, intimidator, yeah. exactly. Right. And, uh, he was known among reporters as a giant pain in the ass, you know, very <laughs> surly and moody and, um, you know, people kind of tippy toed around him and, and he, all that's true, but that was not truly who he was. I, I, I came to learn. Um, so one of my first assignments was do a, a long profile of Dale Earnhardt. And I this was preceded by negotiating, like, how can I spend, how much time can I get around Dale Earnhardt? How, mm -hmm. And so stunningly, again, really not because of me, the place of the Charlotte Observer, I was allowed to shadow him for a whole day. It actually ended up being almost a whole weekend because there were other events. But um, the main, the, my main meeting, when I got to know him was this day that I spent with him, although I had dealt with him a little bit at the track and seen how he treated other people and people kind of gave him a wide berth, in other words. Mm -hmm. um, so I was supposed to meet him at his race shop, not the one that he raced for, but his personal one where, right. where his, his kids had the, their race cars. Um, and Dale Jr. being one of them, he was quite young at the time, um, at 7.31 morning. And uh, we were going to go to North Wilkesboro, a track that is now defunct, but was just recently brought back online through Dale Jr. That's a, another sidetrack. Um, anyway, I had to meet him at his race shop at 7.30. He um, immediately offered me a sun drop soda and a chicken biscuit, you know, for breakfast because we were going to have this long day. Nice. And, uh, yeah, how great is that? And um, we, we ended up like jumping in his pickup truck and heading out for the drive up to North Wilkesboro, which is like 90 minutes. Most people maybe... 
a bit less for him. So it's you and Earnhardt in the cabin of his truck. Well, there was his PR guy was in the back, and okay. the, there was a back back seat. So but how did yeah. he drive on a regular road? Oh, just just. I mean, not ridiculous, but not like a normal person. I mean, he took back roads. So like no, no paying attention to the solid lines or no passing zones, just zip, zip, zip. But there weren't a lot of cars on the road at that hour. And then coming home that late, early evening, there were cars. We went a different way. And he was just a hellacious tailgater, just a pain (laughs) in the ass tailgater, which I cannot stand. Um, Just a bully, you know, but I never felt unsafe. I'll tell you that. Um, Anyway, the point I'm trying to make is, so so I spent this whole day and he understood I was there as Liz from the Charlotte Observer is going to shadow him. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I just had my notepad and I spent I, I didn't ask him a ton of questions. I was like writing in my notebook, like what he said, all this and the other. And then I realized it was really getting on his nerves. And and yeah. at one point he's like, aren't you going to ask me anything? And I'm like, well, yeah. I said, but right now I'm just learning by watching you. I figured I'd learn more by just listening and watching. And he's like, hmm. you know, he, he, I think he liked that. Hmm. And, um, and, <sighs> I'm sorry, this is a muddled memory. But but there were there were moments where he'd like provoke, kind of ask kind of challenging questions. And and just I could tell he was testing me, is what he was doing. He was just trying to see what did I have a spine or you know, who what who was I? I wasn't his normal reporter. Mm-hmm. I didn't seem to shrink. From him, but could he could he kind of back me down? And I wasn't really doing anything confrontational. And I just like would sass him back. I mean, mm-hmm. he'd he'd sass me, I'd sass him back. And he liked that. It, he liked that. It was, it was totally like that. And um, I mean, some memories are personal that that I won't share, but just over the years, he, he was super helpful and super kind. And I know that's because. I didn't treat him like the intimidator. I asked him normal things. I asked him about his dad. I asked him about things that weren't strictly about turning left, you know, or being a badass that didn't play into the stereotype. Because the truth is, he was an incredibly loyal, caring, sensitive person and a deep thinker. I mean, he was a, he, he dropped out of school in the ninth grade. Um, something he regretted for the rest of his life. And we talked about that a good bit. But super smart. I mean, one of the smartest people I've ever come to know, along with Junior Johnson, who also didn't finish traditional schooling. But, you know, he if he trusted you, he he, he trusted you. And, and it was good to get to that point. And I think if I had just treated him like this two-dimensional cardboard figure that he made millions off of. You know, I'm the intimidator. I'm the badass. Right. It it wouldn't have got beyond a two-dimensional understanding of him. You treated him like a person, not a persona. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of how I expected to be treated, too. You know, I mean, Mm -hmm. like a professional... But um, I guess I'm not saying anything unique. Actually, you are. I mean, because most people only know Earnhardt as the persona. 
as the intimidator. Well, that's all he wanted them. Three. That's all he wanted people to know about him. That's right. all he certainly all he wanted his rivals to know about him. Um, you know, and that was the mirrored sunglasses, the pain in the ass. This is how I drive. You know, he'd sit in his car about like this. You know, <laughs> and I, and Hunched down. way down. Oh, actually, that irritated him because so when we spent the day at North Wilkesboro to get from one part of the track to the other, I think we took a golf cart. I know we took a golf cart. And so he drove and we got in it. And so I like went like that. (laughs) He's like, why are you sitting that way? And I'm like, you sit that way. And I wanted to see what puts the big whoop. Like, why are you doing that? And he's like, you sit up, you sit up proud. You're riding with me, you know? So, um, uh, but, uh, yeah, I just treated him like a normal person. I'm fascinated, Liz, I'm fascinated about your relationship your working relationship with Earnhardt because, again, you were able to get past that surface image. And that's not easy to do with people at a certain level of success. And how did that carry through your career of covering NASCAR? Because you covered NASCAR for many, many years. Charlotte Observer, USA Today, Dallas Morning News, Washington Post, obviously, and you wrote the 2008 book, One Hell of a Ride, How NASCAR Swept the Nation, about its growth. So you had to get the type of access that wasn't easy to get. How did that help you with Earnhardt through the years? Well, I mean, for sure, because I worked at the Charlotte Observer, that was everything, you know, for for access. You know, and again, this was pre-internet, pre the explosion of different outlets. Drivers didn't have blogs or websites, you know, mm-hmm. all athletes. The way you reached fans was through the print media and, and a, a little bit, you know, ESPN. That was getting to be a big deal. But, um, you know, the place of the print media was far bigger then to athletes than it is now. The place of the Charlotte Observer in stock car racing, there was nothing more important. So I I arrived with the benefit of, uh, you know, I'm I'm Liz from the Charlotte Observer and, you know, I'm here and I work with Tom Higgins, who was the dean of motorsports racers for the Charlotte Observer. So, you know, and in fact, for the longest time, Earnhardt, uh, I mean, he knew my name, but he would call me Little Higgins. So Tom Higgins was the dean of racers. It, it would be like, oh, here she comes, Little Higgins, you know. <laughs> and, uh, but uh, so, so those were in my favor before, uh, you know, I earned any of it. You know, it was, those were gifts that I, I, I tried to, you know, appreciate and and, and use. I yeah, mean, but I, you, had to, you had to use that to then gain trust. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, right. I, I have always been transparent about my intentions. You know, mm-hmm. I'm working on the story to do it well. I need A, B, and C. Um, you know, would you think about it? Would you, you know, and you can talk to Tom Higgins, you know, I, 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 I never burn people. You know, I've covered a million different sports. 37 years, I do not burn people. That doesn't mean I write, you know, candy, you know, powder puff stories. Mm -hmm. I write hard stories. I write some very difficult stories. But no one is shocked by what I write. Nobody feels backstabbed by what I write. They know what I'm going to write. So it's kind of like it, it helped that, 
if somebody asked about me, can I trust her? What's she like? It, it would either be, I don't know her or yeah, you can trust her. You right. know, she'll, she'll tell you what's up. You're, you know, whatever. So that right. helped. And then again, I wasn't awed by him. You know, I do think oddly, you know, Earnhardt felt like an outsider. Um, he was an outsider, you know, super conscious again of not finishing high school, um, super devastated by the death of his father mm. um, at a very young age he had such a hard life, you know, married, got a girl from pregnant, married as a teenager, worked in a gas station, worked in a cotton mill, right. you know, it just, just earned everything the hard way and hustled and did not grow up with a lot of kind of refined social graces. And then he was a multimillionaire and a corporate sport spokesperson. Mm -hmm. So he, you know, he... He was a, a kind of a, acutely aware of ways in which he was in the mainstream. And I honestly think he identified with me as like, well, she doesn't fit in either. Mm -hmm. You know, like here's an outsider. She's making her way. She's earning her way. Um, and, you know, I, as, and I, I knew him over several years and observed him in different settings. And uh uh, it, it, three or four different papers, you know, I would always find a way to, um, to, to write about him or reason to, to spend time with him. And, you know, he was incredibly caring to elderly people, incredibly gracious to older people, really? to anyone with a disability, to little kids. But like the toughest demographic for him was, you know, the classic NASCAR fan, you know, that guys that would show up wearing his picture on their chest. Right. You know, I think it was hard for him to, to, to understand. I, I don't know. I, I, I have a thought, but I'm not making sense of it. But he had a real goodness to him, but a, an affinity, I think, for people on the margins more so than in the mainstream. That's interesting. And I think it helped me that I was, in his view, on the margins, but it was not holding me back. I got my interviews. I busted my ass in the garage. You know, I asked questions. I did not, also in the NFL, I did not pretend to have knowledge I didn't. Right. I, like, I'm like, explain me a restrictor plate and show it to me. How does it work? I didn't say, you know, to Daryl Green, you know, I, I played cornerback, you know, in eighth grade and I totally <laughs> get the play you just ran. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, which a lot of guys kind of feel compelled to bring their right. expertise as a free safety or whatever. That's like a fraudulent way of trying to to relate to somebody. Yeah. And right. um, I think athletes see through that. Right. <laughs> well, Ern Earnhardt didn't, he, he saw you for what you were. I think that's really interesting that you were able to develop this rapport and this relationship because he saw you as a bit on the margins, a woman coming into the world of sports writing and NASCAR and working your ass off. And yeah. really, and really doing the type of work that he respected, and it's and again, I think the thing that stresses it's not friendship; it's totally no, different. It's, not, it's totally different. But I, yeah, he was he was very funny. It was early on in our relationship. I do I cannot remember for what reason, but we were in his hauler and uh, the, 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 the transporter truck and uh, talking. And I mentioned to him that I was diabetic, that I had diabetes. 
And he honestly went like almost white as a sheet. He's like, you have the sugar, which I don't know, you're not a Southerner, but that's a euf- old time euphemism for having diabetes. Mm. If you have the sugar, the, you have the sugar. And it was for, in the old school South, it was a stigma. It's like you had cancer, you know, right. and it was a fatal illness and it was bad. Uh, and, and he's like, you have the sugar? And I'm like, yeah. And I, my parents are Southerners. I'm like, yeah. And he's like, you have to give yourself shots? Mm. And I'm like, yeah, like seven times a day. He's like, I can never do that. I could never give myself shots. And I'm like, I could never race a race car two hundred miles an hour. <laughs> I said, that's good. So, yeah. He didn't want anything to do with putting a needle in his arm. But he, like, that was a level of bravery that blew his mind. And then he's like, then, it, then he became like totally Dale. He's like, you don't need to be hanging out with those other reporters drinking. And I'm like, well, Dale, you know, I don't do that. He's like, well, you know, if you have the sugar, you can't be out drinking like those those other reporters. I'm like, mm. fear not. I, you know, he's like I, looking I, out for you. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> very dear. <laughs> What was it like for you, and this is a difficult question, but on February 18th, 2001, you're covering the Daytona 500. What was it like for you personally and as a reporter to be there that tragic day when Dale died on the final lap yeah. of, of that race? Yeah, yeah. So I I have, um, I mean, apart from the death of my parents, that was the worst day of my life, you know, by a mile. And, um, you know, I've, I've tried to talk about this to, to journalism classes and it really, it's hard. I, every So forgive me, it's just hard every time because it feels like it was yesterday and I had covered enough, uh, enough death in racing and enough horrible accidents that were not fatal to know. And I had taken actually a, a special course in, in uh, racetrack safety <laughs> to to get better at my job at one point. Um, so I knew I knew that the shorter duration of the crash, the more dangerous it is for the driver. It's the crashes that look worse if the car barrel rolls twelve times. That's safest for the driver because all that energy dissipates over time. If it's if it's over like that, the entire energy is transmitted through the body. Yeah. And, uh, so you and knew right away it, that it was bad. I knew it was incredibly serious. Um, and then there's a protocol that follows. So anytime a driver's in a crash, you're supposed to lower your window net. So the driver's side window, there's no glass. There's just this webbing. Right. And no, you, you lower it to signal, I'm conscious, you know, to the, to the people speeding to help you, like I'm conscious. Right. So it's like the first thumbs up. That's how you give the thumbs up. So the car stopped and the window net is not coming down. Yeah. And the car drifts down the banking. I mean, I, mean, I was just shaken. And, and, and then the race ends, like seconds go by. I mean, the race ends like two seconds later. So the focus of the broadcast, the focus of everybody in the press box is on who wins. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I couldn't take my eye off his car, and and then Dale Daryl Waltrip said something like, "I just hope Earnhardt is okay." Right. And uh, you know, the first driver to the car was Ken Schrader, who I mentioned earlier, and the happiest, funniest. Everybody loves Schrader. Schrader loves everybody. 
and he he was first to the window. And when the ESPN got him immediately, or whoever was broadcasting got him, and I'd never seen such a a look on his face. And he just said, all he said was, we just have to pray. Mm. And I I started crying right then. And um, so I I called the paper, and I, uh, there was someone running the paper who, um, it was her first weekend running the paper, it was a Sunday, Mm. and was quite young. and uh, Courtney, and and I, again, it was before the internet. It's hard to explain how information flowed far differently then. And I just said, um, there's been a terrible crash. I, I'm worried about Earnhardt. Um, it's possible he's been taken to the hospital. It's, I said, if he dies, it is possible that you'll know before we know um, because they races don't like to announce a death that, right. you know, in that I could picture the AP being in the hospital and, and getting confirmation of the death before NASCAR confirmed that he was dead. Right. And I just said, please know if he's dead, this is an A1 story and you've got to call me immediately, you know, because the Washington Post at that time, well, you know, they didn't really understand how important he was. Mm -hmm. And so I just started writing a basic news story. Uh, You know, so-and-so won a crash marred Daytona 500 um, race in which uh, seven-time champion Dale Earnhardt crashed and was taken to the hospital with XXX. You know, I was going to say serious injuries, you know, fill in later. Just, Just to get like get going and and everybody's typing along and uh and then my cell phone rang and it was courtney and 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 she just said um she just said i'm sorry and 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 then i didn't i didn't hear anything so it it did happen like i thought the ap moved on the wire dale earnhardt is dead and uh and it, it, it might have been 15 minutes before it was announced in the press box. It might have been five. I can't remember. Hmm. Um, but the president of NASCAR came in and, and confirmed it later. But but I had known and I didn't make a sound because I didn't want to tell anyone. I mean, I couldn't speak. I just like I just started crying and, and had to type. And and then she called back and said, you know, they want you to write an A1 story, an appreciation of him, and then something else. I, oh, I had to do two stories. And uh, it just, anyway, it, it just, it was unfathomable, but, but it was, it was, it was unfathomable because it was him. It was his track. His, he, he, he was, he was just the best. And plus he, he was invincible. He was the intimidator, the badass, you know, like nothing bad could ever happen to Dale. And, and I covered some bad things that happened to Dale. I remember him racing with a broken sternum at, at Indy once. Um, and, and, and then I'll stop here, but I mean, what followed was days and of mourning and investigation and the seatbelt was broken and, right. What you know? What what? Some serious news, safety questions. The the funeral followed. That it was yeah, a long it became, time before it became I left. a whole 
whole yeah. other and, range and the, of the outpouring of grief. Liz, can I ask? Can I ask you something real fast? Sorry. Yes, I'll stop. Liz, how did you write that night? How were you able to write being as upset as you were? Oh, I mean, I just, I, I just thought of it. I think somebody had put this advice in my head years earlier. I don't know why, how, or what the occasion was. But I just thought, you know, take the emotion out. Or like, not take it out, just like, just set it aside. And I thought of the story like building blocks, like child's building blocks. And I'm just like, make one paragraph, make a second paragraph. Let's each paragraph was a building block, like just, and so I wrote the news story first, which is like follows a sequence. And then here's who he, who Dale was. I'm writing for a general audience here just, and then my phone kind of starts blowing up. Like my dad called who would never call an assignment, but you know, and a boyfriend at the time called because they knew Mm. how much I love Dale. And I'm just can't talk, can't talk. And I stopped answering. I just, I just thought of it as right as clearly in a logical order as possible, get through the news story. And I did that. And then I had to write the appreciation, which was kind of a more personal thing. And it happened that really like nine months prior, I had, I had spent time with Earnhardt at his farm and we got in his truck again, which we, is, he was the best place to interview him when he was driving. <laughs> and, uh, but we were just like putting around his farm. He wanted to show me the pond where he fished and the, uh, ch- he, he had a chicken farm, like the chicken coops, like we were, anyway. <laughs> right, he was proud he to was show you all this. Totally right. proud and totally relaxed when he was driving. And it was his turf, I mean, literally his turf. And and I would just run the tape recorder and we'd talk. And we talked about his retirement. And so he was 49 then. And he was saying, he was worrying about it already. He's like, am I gonna know when it's time to retire? Mm. He's like, I don't wanna hang on till I'm pathetic. Uh, you know, I don't right. want to hang on too long. He's like, I, I've watched Michael Jordan, how he retired, you know. And anyway, he was speaking so thoughtfully about knowing that his end was coming, at least in this iteration. And he was starting to become a car owner. And I had the whole transcript of that day in my laptop. And so when I was thinking, okay, how do I make this appreciation? I, I'm like, go read your transcript. I mean, I'm talking like take five minutes and read this transcript. And it just, it was so poetic the way he was speaking about it. And then things that I knew about him just came to me. And it that was more cathartic in a way. Mm. Uh, um, and I, you know, I'm the queen of missing deadlines, but I didn't <laughs> miss either deadline. I mean, the, these were, these were the most important stories. Yeah. And like you said early in our conversation, like you owed it to the athlete and the audience yeah, to do a good job, right? Even in that, yeah. and, even and in and that very think, emotional moment, you, you had a job to do. Yeah. The next day, I think you took a walk across the grounds of Daytona Speedway, right? With Chuck Culpepper. Yeah, then I spent the next day... Uh, because NASCAR was going to have a press conference, I believe. I hope my sequence is right. I mean, I didn't leave. Explaining, was the seatbelt broken? Was it cut? Was it frayed? Right. This, that, and the other. 
Um, I remember asking who was the manufacturer of the seatbelt. There were only like two possibilities. And then being treated like a effing pariah to ask an obvious news question. But um, anyway, it was an obvious question, a, a small matter. But, uh, you know, I started out walking to... Because it, it, I just cannot ex- describe the outpouring of grief um, that had to be captured, and I felt myself. And you know, as a reporter, I, that was my job. So, you know, there was a memorial already. You know, flowers, teddy bears, tributes, signs. You know, outside turn four. Uh, where the crash had been, you know, outside the track. I think now there's a statue of Dale, mm-hmm. I believe, um, there. And uh, I came across the wonderful Chuck Culpepper, who's now right. our mutual and, friend, um, the great Chuck Culpepper. You knew him a bit, and we just were like travelers uh, in this in this day of tears. And uh, and I remember Mike Vega being there too from the Boston, Boston Globe, Globe, right? And, uh, you know, nobody had words. Nobody had words. And, uh, you know, it was a long series of days of press conferences and questions and then um, a funeral service in Charlotte. And, and then the next weekend's race was at Rockingham, North Carolina. And, and you know, it was, that was a hard thing to cover. It yeah. was a hard thing for everybody. I don't mean to make it sound like... I had the hard time. I mean, my God, his his son raced the next weekend. And yeah. everybody in the garage, everybody was just, there was the level of disbelief. It, it, was just, it just took forever for it to sink in. He was gone. I don't think NASCAR has ever recovered. It's never been the same. I appreciate you sharing the emotion of that because I do feel like we think of people like Earnhardt as, they are icons, and then we think of them almost as not human. And then I think there's a tendency to think that the media is not human, that these aren't people. These are just the media. But when you develop working relationships over years, you know, you're a person. You get an understanding of someone, and then they have to do your work in that moment. Um, it shows the humanity that's on the other side of the wall that's the reporters. You know, and not to, I mean, but it's, it's so much. I mean, I've covered a lot of death. You know, a lot of death in my time um, and and shed a lot of tears. I, that was hardly the first set of stories I wrote through tears. I mean, you know, writing about what happened to Simone Biles and the Olympic gymnasts, you know, at Larry Nassar's, how, how these athletes were betrayed and exploited and, uh, you know, if you've ever covered a a thoroughbred race and seen a horse break down, you know, and and it, it it's just there's a lot of tragedy in sport. That's the spectrum of emotion. I think that you know, as a writer, you were dealing with all ends. You know, yeah. you're dealing with the most difficult things, and then there are times in your career when you think about it, you're just overwhelmed with with joy about witnessing something on such a no, a, a, a no you don't have to apologize so because I think it's really no. revealing to about no, how writers me. do their job especially then especially before the internet took over how we had yeah. the time and the access to develop a working rapport and an understanding and uh, I think 
you know, the flip side of it is there are moments when you're standing there watching somebody set a world record or do something heroic. And you're like, I can't believe that we're witnessing this. And now I have the obligation to try to write about what it's like to be here. I mean, the, 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 the list of moments that I pinched myself, like, I cannot believe, like, I am witnessing this moment in history. And, okay, and give us a favor. And, and, oh, my. Oh, no, there's so many. There's All right, so come many. on. Come on, no, Liz. No, I mean, <laughs> so, I mean, my very first Olympics was the 2000 Olympics in Sydney. And my first event I covered was the the triathlon, which started at the Sydney Opera House. And I believe I had like my first cell phone and I broke every Washington Post rule so that I could call my mother, you know, <laughs> right before it started. And I, as a kid, I loved it. That was my I'm first like, Olympics. Whoa! I remember those phones. Those phones were like James Bond. Yeah. 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 They were like James so, Bond phones, these little tiny I, things. I couldn't believe it. They were so clear sounding. Yes. <laughs> and, um, you know, the first time I, I walked through the gates at Wimbledon, I just couldn't believe, like, I am here at Wimbledon. The first the first Olympics I got to cover gymnastics. It, it wasn't my first Olympics. Um, someone else was covering it, but when it the beat came to me. That was my favorite sport. I just, when they started marching in that arena, I cried. I mean, I cried because as a kid, you know, the Washington Post was my favorite newspaper, my revered newspaper, and gymnastics was my favorite sport. And I'm like, this paper has not only hired me, they've sent me to Athens, Greece. And I have the job of describing this for Washington Post readers, this most beautiful thing. I just couldn't believe it. Um, you know, that. Weren't oh you my at God. the uh, 2010 World Cup in South Africa? I was just then thinking about Nelson Mandela. You know, the, the six weeks in South Africa, I'd never been in Africa. Um, it was my second World Cup. Uh, which I covered with Steve Goff, like the awesome, most incredibly kind coworker and brilliant soccer writer. Um, but that 2010 World Cup, the time in South Africa, I learned so much. Um, I mean, obviously, I had studied apartheid in college. You know, anyone who lived and read newspapers. You were a history major, right? Yeah, but I I hope we all knew the horrors of apartheid and the fight to dismantle it. And, um, you know, for South Africa to host the World Cup, it was just 20 years after Nelson Mandela had been freed from prison. And, you know, I, I I was so overwhelmed in so many settings. I mean, one of the first thing I did in breaking away from the scripted, you know, U.S. press corps where you're ferried to practice back and forth, which is a great, great thing, you know, right. but as a reporter, you need to break away and report your own stories. I I um, got a driver to take me into Soweto because I wanted to, to see the the township. And um, I went to Nelson Mandela's home where he lived. Um, I I just could not believe the warmth and welcome of the South African people, what this event meant in terms of reconciliation. I thought so much about how can this country just 20 years removed from the horrors of, uh, of their apartheid system, it, it, it seemingly 
be so much farther down the road to racial reconciliation than our own country, you know, after 200 years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's not, it, it, it was just, it was just a lot to reflect on. And um, the sound of the Vuvuzela is just a great sound. You know, there's so much culturally that was different and um, singular. Yeah, about that horn, that, that horn and, sound is so unique. Horn, like, you know, then I was thinking actually, you know, I've taken pictures of these 33 years in sports, but I so wish I had made an audio diary, like audio, because I'm thinking, I was thinking earlier, like the great sounds of, of, that of my career that there's nothing like it. Like the pinch me moments, right. the pinch me moments. Right. If you're standing inside turn one of the Daytona 500 on lap one, like 43 race cars going to turn one, it's a completely, there's nothing like that sound. I mean, the sound of it, in the same spot at the Indy 500 of an Indy car race, but in the old Indy car days, Completely different sound, but that too was unique. The sound of the Vuvuzela was unique. You know, the sound of, you know, the way the tennis ball hits on clay at the French Open. It's like this sort of thud in the sound of the players skidding. It, it's just these, these moments that you wish, I mean, to my credit, even as I lived it, I knew like, please remember this moment. You know, you're so lucky. You're so lucky. And um, there are so many of those lucky moments. Yeah. I mean, be, lucky is such an inadequate word. Um, but, you know, and not to mention the learning you try to do in the middle of your job. I mean, to the post in their, my 25 years, they sent me to cover sporting events on six continents. Six out of seven and, you know, it's not to say I've mastered the world, but, you know, I was able to scoot away and see the Parthenon and see right. the Great Wall of China, you know, and uh, the Eiffel Tower and um, Christ the Redeemer, the statue in Rio. I mean, I... I what a privilege. What an incredible yeah, I think privilege. I have a much greater appreciation now that I'm out of the business and older. But I always felt an obligation when I was in places like that to take the reader with me. That yes. I'm here. You're not. Here's what it's like to be here. Yes. Yes. And to tour Robin Island in Cape Town, which is where Mandela was imprisoned. I mean, one of the most profound tours I've ever taken of uh, of that island. When you were in the press box at that World Cup and Mandela yeah. comes in oh. to the stadium, what was that moment like? Oh, I, you know, that that was a, I take that to my grave, you know, to have been able to, to be in that press box with Steve Goff at that final. And I just, I don't believe we knew that Mandela was going to be there, but he was quite elderly. He died not long after that. Um, he he was in a golf cart, you know, and ridden around. And it was just the most ear-splitting. If, if ear-splitting and reverence can be in the same sound, it's what that was. It wasn't ear-splitting like mania of, mm -hmm. of you know, 
like wild. It was just complete awe and appreciation. And um, how many people can say they saw Nelson Mandela, you know, and, and have the chance to learn a, a little bit more deeply about what he, he meant to a nation and what, um, you know, the meaning of forgiveness is and reconciliation is. And um, it's not to say that that country has solved its, its legacy, its, its problems. But um, I guess what I'm saying is to be in the presence of greatness, you know, and, and here the world is gathering, right? Here the world has gathered literally by TVs to honor the greatest soccer players in the world, the greatest event. Right. But the real champion is this miniature ancient man. That's the champion we're honoring. It's Nelson Mandela, you know, and um, champions take many forms, but there's no sporting champion like him. I, I would say these, um, for me, it, it was almost always the international events that I love so much because they're so, I don't want scary, but they just, strip you down into the most humble level. Like I need to master this transit system, do the best I can with this language, get what I need, figure out the time difference, figure out I, when I can sleep, what I can eat. You know, like so many challenges that before you even type the first word, I love that crushing challenge. Um, so there was something about the glorious rush of Olympics every two years, once in a while, World Cups, uh, two, maybe two slams a year. Mm -hmm. um, Tennis, right. That, like, was sustaining. It's like, oh, my God, it, you know, this year, maybe I'll get to cover that. And, you know, whatever's required to get to that point, I'm going to do. But then the real, the real connective tissue, what's truly sustaining, are the friends. And that's not simply your coworkers, like the fabulous Sally Jenkins, you know, or Barry Sperluga or Stephen Goff, the people you like sweat through the assignments, Mike Jones, um, uh, you know, is you and I know it, sometimes your, your tribe, your, your family, it's people others would say are your competitors, you know, reporters from other papers, maybe reporters from other countries. You get to know each other on the road. I mean, for the South Africa World Cup, for several Wimbledons, I was a, a, a roommate with Michelle Kaufman of right, the Miami, Miami Herald. Herald. It's like right. the dearest friend, the most wonderful person to share highs and lows with you could ever ask for. And, you know, Bonnie Ford, getting to know her on the road, getting to know you just a wee bit, getting to know Chuck Culpepper on the road before we were um, uh, co-workers. And, you know, I have friends, uh, reporters in Japan, in Belgium, uh, you know, I'm, that I'm thinking of who, who like help me with translations or help explain to me what does Yuzuru Hanyu, why are people so crazy about him in Japan? And what is right. this concept that's like childlike, but adoration and respect. And it's like, it's a whole thing that I need decoded for me. Just the most open-hearted reporters who would help you. And then you try to figure out, can I help them? Like, what can I do that's helpful to them? Yeah, it was very relatable in the tribe to show up at a major event or even just a big game and try to figure out what are the challenges and how am I going to deal with this? But the best, you know, the best feeling was that you were among 
other reporters, other writers who are also facing all that, also facing their own insecurities. And you were able to somehow then ultimately take the reader with you because that was your job. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's exactly. And um, especially so, um, you know, before the internet, before 24-7 and blogging and tweeting and this, that and the other, when um, you really, it really mattered, you know, the quality of your work and and, and the way you could present it to people. Because mm-hmm. the, um, the words mattered. Yeah. The, the balance mattered. The fairness mattered. Right. Well, I always admired your work, A, because it was so stellar, but B, because it was so obvious the passion you brought to, whether it was the depth of the offensive line or a profile of <laughs> Earnhardt or, um, you know, being in South Africa for the World Cup um, and obviously all the great tennis you wrote. Um, you were always there. You are always present in the moment. And I always felt like that was the the way I strive to be was to, to like, there's an obligation there to, to, to do your job because you have this privileged opportunity to be somewhere where you never thought you were going to be. That's so well put. And I certainly regarded you in that same vein. And you know what? We didn't even talk about Dan Snyder. <laughs> That's just funny. Many words have been written and said. Oh, well, Liz, I really appreciate you taking the time to um, to look back at highlights of your career, especially your uh, insight about Earnhardt. And um, Liz, thank you so much. And I wish you all the best in retirement. You as well. Well, you're not retired, but thank you, Todd. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Press Box Access. You can find us here with a new episode every other Wednesday. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. We'd love for you to review us. Five stars would be nice. Follow us on social media. Drop us an email at pressboxaccess at gmail.com. And be sure to spread the word. Everyone is welcome here. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to executive producers Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando producer Bill Hoffman, and our audio engineer, Nathan Corson. I'm your host, Todd Jones. It's closing time. Rock on. I'm Bruce Martin, host of Pit Pass Indy. Each week, I go behind the scenes of the NTT IndyCar Series and introduce our listeners to the biggest stars of IndyCar, which features the Indianapolis 500 as its cornerstone event. The men and women that compete in IndyCar may be the bravest athletes in all of sport as danger lurks around every corner. They are able to look danger in the eye without flinching. That is why the NTT IndyCar Series features the best racing on the planet. Join me every week as we talk to the stars of IndyCar, including the legends of the Indianapolis 500 on Pit Pass Indy from Evergreen Podcast.